0: You can uh, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We are working our way through the book. We're getting close to the end. It seems like it's been a quite a journey. This is actually message number 16. I'm calling this message, The Race, and obviously you'll, you'll see that as we go. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll look at verses 1 through 17. I'll go ahead and read that, and then we will get to work. Hebrews 12, these are the words of God. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord." See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we come now to um, open up your word and be challenged by what we find in it. We know that it is our responsibility to run the race you have set before us, but we also know that you're the one who gives us all we need in order to do so. So help us as sons and daughters to diligently strive for the joy set before us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, as I said, tonight's message is called The Race, and I want to focus in mostly on the first three verses of the chapter, um, chapter 12, and as you'll see, um, verses 4 through 17 basically serve as an explanation of the central point of the passage. The Bible uses several different types of metaphors to describe the Christian faith, and one of the key metaphors has to do with this idea of a marathon, this idea of a race. Since we are not pagans, We do not hold a view of history that is simply cyclical. So we reject things like incarnation and any variation of it. We do not believe that history is a circle and that we are on this hamster wheel forever. You know, round and round we go. Instead, we start with the creator God and thus history is the unfolding of his divine will. So it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. Consequently, at some point, time will not be something that restricts us. At some point, time will not be something that restricts us. In, in heaven, there are no watches. But as it stands now, we are governed by God through nature, and it takes 24 hours for the earth to do one full turn. So that's, that's what we have going on right now, which means that for us, Um, this race that we are on, the race of faith, it does have an end. There is an end to it. There is a finish line in this race. So we are not on the track running over and over doing lap over lap with no end in sight. Um, The race has a start, that's regeneration. Um, The race has stipulations and regulations, that's sanctification in accordance to the law of God. And the race has an end, that is final glorification. Amen to that. So what we must do, and we are told here, is to run the race. So let's look at our text, and we'll just kind of walk through it, and then I'll pull out some, some stuff later. Now, <clears throat> in, verse one, in verse 1, we are told that we have a great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us. In other words, like the Roman games, where the crowd would gather and cheer on the competitors, even sometimes in immoral and unrighteous ways. Um, think of the uh, the Roman games where Christians were thrown to the lions, which incidentally, um, I went to Rome a few years ago, and I took a bus ride, one of the tour buses, I'm that guy, mm-hmm. sat on the top, and, and I was listening. You pick your language, and you can listen to some of the history lessons. And one of the things they said was, contrary to popular belief no christians died in the colosseum i mean they were talking about it as we drove right by the colosseum and i thought well that, that that's not right <laughs> um, that did happen and lots of historical evidence and early writings that that talked about it so that think think roman games think this gray cloud of witnesses this the crowd would come and cheer on competitors and sometimes egg them on as it were depending on the situation Now, in that same situation, the Christian faith, we have a population full of people who have gone before us. Um, They've reached the end of the race. They're there. Now, clearly, that's a reference to the saints of old that we saw from the last chapter, but the writer wants us to learn from their example. We're supposed to learn from the Cain and Abel story. We're supposed to learn from Noah and Moses and so on and so forth. So in light of all of those who have gone before us, We are told then to lay aside every encumbrance or a burden. And that usually expresses itself in sin, which, the text says, so easily entangles us. Now, I doubt anybody here is going to say, no, sin doesn't entangle me. Well, that's what sin does. It's the nature of it. It entangles you. It burdens you. It weighs you down. So to state the obvious, that when a runner is entangled, he cannot run efficiently. So therefore, we're supposed to lay those things aside. Sin is not something that you can cozy up with and expect to have great results in your sanctification. So in order to run with endurance or persevere, perseverance, the race requires, listen, this is a requirement, the race requires that we fight against sin in our lives. That's, that's the prerequisite. You have to do that. Now the other condition in verse 2, to properly properly run this race has to do with fixing our eyes on Jesus. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Fixing your eyes on Jesus means that you're not looking around while we're running, gazing gazing at ourselves, gazing at other people, or even gazing at the crowd. Um, No, we are to look to Jesus. But why? Why must we look to Jesus? him well because he's the author he's the leader he's the per- perfecter of faith so when we look to jesus our faith is protected or it, well it is protected but it's perfected because it's jesus who does the perfecting he's the trailblazer right he's the captain of our salvation we've already covered that in early in hebrews he's the anchor that holds within the veil Jesus is both the originator of our salvation and he's the one who gives us the salvation that functions properly. So we must look to him. In looking to Jesus, we must not ignore his example. We are told here in verse two that joy was set before him. And because of it, what did he do? Joy was set before him. What did he do? He endured the cross. He took the cross on himself that's the meaning of the word endured. In the cross, he despised the shame of it, and because he trusted God, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, being a priest and a king. Now, verse three says we should consider Jesus. Consider, remember, we already have fix your eyes on him. Now we have consider Jesus. Consider the fact that he endured hostility from sinners. And we should probably consider that we would have done the same thing, too. That, that'll, you know, keep that in mind. And we should consider this fact so that in our race, why should we consider Jesus? So that we do not grow weary and lose heart. So clearly the writer is presupposing that it is possible for you to run the race, not endure hostility, and what do you reap? You lose heart. You're weary. You're run down. So, we've all gone through those stages in our lives where the sanctification thing's just not jiving. <laughs> it's a season of frustration, a season of depression, uh, oppression, perhaps, persecution. We've all been there. But we must endure. We must endure so that we do not grow weary and lose heart. So, we are in a race. The race is the Christian faith and the race requires that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We, as Peter says, we make our calling and election sure and the way we do this is by participating in the dominion mandate through the application of the law, word of God to every area of life. That's essentially what Hebrews has been hitting home repeatedly. By the way, uh, Well, we'll get into that in the next couple of weeks when we finish Hebrews. But Hebrews is going to end on a very practical note. There's going to be some practical application about things that we should do. All of that's in the context, remember, of everything that's gone ahead. There's been this tremendous theological foundation that's been laid, and then we're going to be able to build on it, and it's going to be this glorious thing. So um, that's how we do the, the race. We participate in the race. We love the law of God. We seek to apply the law of God. And obeying the dominion mandate, and so on and so forth. But the way we do this is just as important as the fact that we're doing it. There is a way to run the race, and there are several ways to not to try and run the race. So we've already covered the key key components, right? So much is in these first three verses. We have to lay aside the burden of sin so that we can run with endurance. Um, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. Uh, we must look to his example. We must consider his endurance of hostility so that we won't lose heart. Now, think about the opposite things as well. They're true as well. We, we must not hang on tight to sin. We we must not ignore the race and try to get out of having to do this, right? I don't want to get out of bed, Jesus. Why are you making me run? I hate running, right? <laughs> That's the improper attitude. We, we must look to ourselves as though we are the authors and perfecters of our salvation. We must not rely solely on ourselves to not lose heart, but look instead to Jesus. I will say this, in light of the events this weekend and today with Crossing Ground, what was beautiful in all of that was to see our little group, and some of your geographically, you are know, geographically out there, not pointing fingers or anything, but... <laughs> But what was neat though, and and, and Lord knows that you, we could have called you and you'd have drove an hour to, to help in a situation. I know that. But it's neat to see Christian community come together in a way that's just, it's beautiful. There's nothing like it on the planet. And it's hard. There are hard things we have to go through. We're We're a young work. It's going to take time. It's going to take patience. There's a lot to endure. But that's the beautiful thing is none of us are we need each other. None of us can perfect our salvation ourselves. And, and if you can, we'll rebuke you later. So, so the first three verses here are absolutely foundational. The writer then moves on to further his point. In saying that we should consider Jesus so we don't lose heart, he continues in verse 4 to make the obvious point here. None of them have reached the point of shedding their blood. Have any of you here reached the point of shedding your blood for the cross of Christ? No, we we haven't. We may know people who have. I know people who've been to Africa, family that have, for example, endured quite a bit of, of hostility um, and, and not just a naysayer. <laughs> um, so, so the, the Hebrews, and like us, they, we haven't been so immersed in resisting sin and striving against sin that they have shed their blood like Jesus had done, and we have not either. And not only that, verse 5 says that they've forgotten the exhortation from the Bible regarding them as sons and daughters of God. The quote here in verse 5 and 6 is from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. And he makes this point about discipline in the Lord, and here's what we know from this passage. Here are four things. Number one, we are sons of God. We are sons of God. Sons and daughters of the king. That's one thing for certain we know here. We are sons of God. Number two, the Lord does discipline. He does discipline. So our father in heaven is a father who is present and accounted for. He's not absent. The Lord does, in fact, discipline. I'm going to talk about that word in a little bit. Third thing, God's discipline is a sign of His love. All right, we'll get to that. But kids, it's not loving to let you do whatever you want. What is loving is for you to be taught to obey Christ. And one of the ways we do that, that's what discipline is, is is teaching, it's training in righteousness. So we know that we're sons of God. The Lord does discipline. Discipline is a sign of his love. And lastly, here's the catch. You can't escape it. <laughs> you cannot escape it. Verse 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. The word discipline is padia, and it's connected to the idea of instruction or learning, and that's connected to the idea of being reprimanded. And so usually in today's context, when we think of Parenting and children and discipline. I don't know about you, but the, there are times where I was out of line as a kid and um, I had corporal punishment administered to me. Um, but that's not, you should not just jump to that text or jump to that concept. Discipline, it doesn't automatically mean grab the nearest spoon and go to work. Discipline is the hard work of righteous instruction. Okay, it's the hard work of righteous instruction. So you can reprimand a child for being disobedient or what have you, but in our culture it just seems like well that's the point, you know. You get people to flippantly say, well, just give them a spanking and that'll deal with it. Well, you've done nothing but perhaps, you know, enforce your anger. There has to be an element of teaching. There must be instruction. That's what discipline is. Now that was just a little of a little bit of a rabbit trail. The point here is this: from beginning to end, from regeneration to glorification, the entirety of the Christian life, the race, it's marked by discipline from our heavenly Father. This race is marked by discipline from our heavenly Father. When we are brought into this race, what is clear is that you must. Now, you cannot pull the toddler thing, and you're in the grocery store, and you just fall to the ground and throw a fit. That's how many Christians treat the Christian faith. That's how they pursue holiness, by throwing a temper tantrum. You have to run. You cannot slack. You cannot take shortcuts. When you try to do that in your walk with Christ, what happens? (laughs) We already know. We lose heart. We grow weary. You mess it up. As our father, and because he deals with us on those terms, we must not be shocked to learn that he does bring discipline to us. God does reprimand and correct us. Now, I don't know about you, but I prefer the gentle whisper. But if possible, and at times this is usually what happens, he will grab the nearest two by four and smoke you in the head. We need that discipline, we need that correction. And verse 9 says, The earthly fathers taught us righteousness. How much more with God the Father? How much more will He do the same? Now, back up to verse 8. There's a contrast in verse 8. Let's read that. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The implication is this. Sons of God, daughters of the King, are disciplined. They work through various obstacles in the race. There are pits to climb out of. There are hurdles to jump over. There are times of suffering, times of frustration um, that we have to work through. And what is that? That's God bringing the dross out of us, taking it away, refining us, making us more like His Son. But all of that stuff, is a sign that you are the son and a daughter of the Most High God. Listen, when trials come, it isn't a sign that God doesn't love you. It's a sign that He does love you. When the trials come, it's not. you should not stop and say, well, God doesn't love me clearly because things have not been going my way. No, things are not going your way because guess what? It's your way. That's the problem. (laughs) This is a sign that God does love you. Now keep going. We learn in verse 10 that like earthly fathers who discipline their children for a short time as seem best for them, to them, so God the Father disciplines us for our good, and he doesn't do it, and he does it so that we can share in his holiness. I forgot to mention this earlier, but I, the book recommendation for this week was The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Fantastic book on holiness. Um, J.C. Ryle has written some great stuff on holiness. J.I. Packer. But Sprol, for whatever reason, and his isn't a long read, it's just top-notch. It's very good. So we're, we're disciplined so that we can share in his holiness. So yes, all, all discipline at the time doesn't seem quite joyful, verse 11. Instead, it tends to be sorrowful. We always... Um, one of my favorite characters is Eeyore. And Eeyore, he's just struggling. And if we're honest... We're not poo. We're Eeyore. Like, uh, I don't know. That's a different issue. But <laughs> um, so all of that, all of that isn't so that we would be depressed. It's so we share in His holiness. Yes, it's it's not always joyful. Life isn't always joyful. Sometimes your car breaks down at an inconvenient time. It's not joyful, and you may moan loudly. Oh. <laughs> but all of that. <laughs> But here's the encouragement, all right, brother? But for those who see it, those who see all of this as a training ground, they see the results afterwards because that discipline, once it's worked inside of you, it yields and brings forth the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Verse 11. So in light of all this, we shouldn't sit down and relax. We should get to work. Look at verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So get, make sure you have good running shoes. If you've got to see an orthopedic, do that. If you, whatever you got to do, get up, train your body through God's corrective discipline and find healing there. Now, no, <laughs> I'm always fascinated with the Olympics especially guys like Usain Bolt and they're just incredible they're so fast and I, I particularly um found it in uh, interesting the people who do the hurdles like whether it's a 100 meter hurdle or what have you and what a what an impressive amount of skill to to you have to time the jump right your foot can't hit it like there's just there's this incredible thing in order to win that race you can't start by looking at the hurdles and say come on what's the deal, <laughs> right? You get the analogy. We, we can't see those things as being, you know, God's petty um, dealing with us. We have to see it as God's plan for us. Now, one of the ways this training and this discipline works out in our lives is through a pursuit of peace with all men. We must be at peace with all men, Paul says, so long as it depends on you. That's interesting that he brings pursuit, this practical point. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You and I must be peacemakers. Um, I forget where I saw this, but it was an interesting difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. Think about that. It's, it's interesting. We're called to be peacemakers. We're blessed when we're peacemakers. And sometimes we just settle for peacekeeping when we should be peace peacemakers so holiness is serious business holiness is something that you should consider often without pursuit of holiness no one will see the Lord the text says in other words verse 15 says that we should see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God it's a grace race It's a race of God's grace. So don't quit early. Don't bow out before you've even gotten up and running. Pursue this sanctification so that, the text says, so that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. Now, that's interesting. When we pursue sanctification, we must do it in a way so that no bitterness can spring up like a weed in your garden only to cause trouble and then ruin everything. In this race, what's presupposed here? In this race, we run together. And verse 16 says, we can't tolerate immoral or godless persons. (laughs) We cannot have a bunch of Esau's running around causing problems. Now, why does he bring up Esau? Well, here's the story quickly. Esau, he sold his birthright you can go all the way back to Genesis and read this story. He sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a meal, a single meal. Now, you might, well, birthright, What is, we're a little foreign to that in our culture. Verse 17 tells us that afterwards, um, he wanted the blessing from his father, but was rejected because Isaac had already given it to Jacob, and, you, and it could not be revoked or redacted. So instead of repentance for his sin, Isaiah, Isaiah Esau gave fake repentance, crying over his lack of blessing instead of his godless sin. Kids, take note. When, when, we're, when we're bringing discipline and instruction, we want you to know ultimately that your sin is against God first. It's a sin against God, and repentance means not being sorry you know, that you got caught, but being sorry for the actual transgression. So just some quick observations. Let's start with Esau. Esau is brought up for a great reason. He was the oldest son to Isaac, and according to biblical law, he was the heir of the blessing or the promise. Now, Esau, the firstborn sons, were in, in, in Scripture to receive a double portion, um, and Jacob the rest. There's an interesting study of that if you look at the end of Genesis um, about how Joseph, the youngest, was betrayed. I think, who came after Joseph? Uh, Benjamin, wasn't it? Benjamin was youngest. But Joseph actually gets the blessing through all that stuff God put him through. You want to talk about a study on trials and and running a race? Um, Joseph is a prime example. But so Esau, he was supposed to get the double blessing. Jacob was supposed to get the rest. But Jacob wanted the blessing because he's a trickster. And if you recall, he tricked his father Isaac into giving it to him. He even put on hairy you know, um, uh, skins so that his father, who could not see well, uh, would believe that it was Esau. Now, the example of Esau is brought up here during a crucial time of the argument of Hebrews. It's not just a random thought. There's a purpose to it. Keep in mind the warnings that are throughout the book. The Hebrews were told not to forsake the assembly. They were told not to forsake the church, leave Christ, walk away from him, and walk away from brothers and sisters, and then go back to the temple system. The Hebrews, they were in a more privileged position, more so so than Esau. Why? Jesus came as a Jewish man. They, too, were Jewish. If they were to walk away from Christ, here's the point. They were worse off than Esau. Anyone who left Christ to go back to Judaism thus became like Esau. But even worse, their repentance is not real, it's not genuine, it's not bearing fruit. And verse 15 they are told not to come short of the grace of God. Another warning don't come short of the grace of God. Grace is a gift don't squander it now yes the romans killed jesus but the greater sin came upon the jewish leaders who made it all happen the other side of the warning in verse 15 um, has to do with apostasy this retreat from truth when when a root of bitterness comes up men are entangled and thus they cannot run okay heart check have you have you ever been bitter towards someone We don't need a show of hands because ah, we can all do that, right? Okay, so bitterness, I've heard this said, um, you know, bitterness is you drinking the poison hoping they will die. Bitterness, all it does is it stems in your heart and it starts to creep up in there and it just tangles everything up and you cannot run the race efficiently. Bitterness actually ruins you. It doesn't ruin the other person. It ruins you. And this was Esau. Such was Esau. Such are some people who forsook the gospel. They started out well, they were enlightened, they tasted the heavenly gift, Hebrews says, and then they they walked away. Now Esau was not a man governed by true biblical faith. Sure, he believed in the God of Abraham, his grandfather, but he did not want to be governed or ruled by this God. And so instead of trusting God and being ruled by him, Esau, he forsook it all. Instead of trusting God to provide at all times, Esau basically took matters into his own hands. You know, like evangelicals today. Anyone, anyone who jumps ship and flees from Christ is an Esau. And here's the larger point. Christianity is not an easy believism religion. Christianity is not this a la carte buffet of faith. It's not a race where one can choose not to race biblical faith, as we looked at last week, is a faith for all of life, not some of life. So there's no picking and choosing here. There's either obedience to Christ or there is disobedience to Christ. Now the problem with Esau and and the problem of the temptation of some of the Hebrews when they received this letter was the fact that instead of repenting for his sin, he tried to manage his sin. He tried to undo it instead of repent of it. That's the same problem we are warned against here in this passage. People who want to run the race must do so on God's terms, not their own terms. Faith is not an option. It's not something you get to change in and out depending on how you feel each day. And far too many churches treat Christianity like one activity amongst other activities. Instead of of a faith for Monday through Saturday, most church leaders, it seems, and pastors they're content to spend their days preparing a one-hour service each Sunday where all the teaching is done, where all their budget money is spent, and where all their faith is held. It's this truncated mess. Now, I want to get back to the central passage, the focus of the passage for a minute. Because we here at Crossing Crown Church teach a faith for all of life, all of Christ for all of life. And we have a few things to say about this race, this Christian life listen carefully i want you to get this especially you kiddos when you come to christ jesus when you come to him you do not do so in order to escape your troubles but to make sense of your troubles when you come to christ you don't do so to escape your troubles but to make sense of them think about it apart from christ Trouble and discipline and instruction and all these different things is meaningless. It's meaningless. Think about it from an unbelieving worldview. You can't even define trouble. You can't. Because if we're just pond scum that's got up and walked someday, everything just happens. It just happens. What is trouble? Well, what is not trouble? You can't even define the two. Trouble presupposes a standard of stability and discipline, discipline presupposes a standard of righteousness so in other words you you can't know what it, troubles and trials and suffering are unless you compare it to something that isn't that something that isn't a trial and the same thing goes with discipline if discipline is to be true we have to know that which is not discipline thus we have a faith for all of life revealed in the word of god Now what this passage teaches is that we are sons and daughters of God, and that doesn't mean that we get a pass from suffering. It doesn't mean we get a pass from it. Instead of living your best life now, we might well say live your worst life now. I say that tongue-in-cheek, of course, because life with Christ is always good. It's always good. And that's because good is on his terms, not our terms or the world's terms. I've done um, plenty of funerals in my life, and there is a vast difference between doing the funeral of a believer and not a believer where it's like, oh yeah, he was a member of a church, never went, never really did anything with his faith. There's there's a vast difference between somebody who was a rock-solid community leader, they were uh, faithful in the church all their lives, you know, Gave, served, left it on the court. There's a difference between that type of funeral and the funeral of somebody who wasn't a believer. or Because where's your hope? Um, I remember a couple of very large funerals we did in Michigan of some pa- patriarch, matriarchal type people, you know, just um, wonderful, wonderful old-timers. And they were known, probably in, you know, several counties... Um, that's how impactful they were. And let me tell you, that funeral, it was like a party almost. Not that we weren't sorrowful, but we understand suffering now. We understand death. We understand the cross and the resurrection. So all of that stuff's on God's terms and not ours. But make no mistake, when you come to Christ... It isn't that you are free from trials or suffering and chastisement. When you come to Christ, you finally see clearly what all of that actually is and what all of that actually means. Because now your suffering is for the purpose of you looking more like Jesus. So for illegitimate children, those who rebel against God, they don't have a category for any of this. Men who don't have Christ are simply walking around in darkness. They can't see anything. They don't know it is suffering, and they can't consistently call it suffering because for them, it's simply, um, as Van Til said, integration into the void. It's just furthering the darkness. So if, if the origin of man is that pond scum, and it's not the creator triune God, then suffering can't be defined, and it just is. Well, bad things just happen. Well, you know, evolution isn't perfect after all. That's another illogical statement. But as for sons of God, we see all of it clearly. The light in the dark room is turned on. We know that it is God who uses our suffering in order to train us, to prepare us, and to sanctify us. And we may not fully understand it, but we know it, and we can trust it. The Christian sees suffering as an aspect of sanctification and not retribution. The whole, you know, bad things happening to good people lingo, it's not even coherent in an unbelieving worldview. What's bad? What's good? But for for the sons of God running the race that's set before us, any hurdle that comes is something that is meant to refine us, not stop us. In other words, your troubles, your suffering, the chastisement you may feel from our father who cares and loves it's not meaningless brothers and sisters it's not meaningless they are tools of god to train you so you see when when a man is regenerated the law of god is written on his heart so that in all aspects of life he can discern between good and evil and put that law to good use once you are born again you must now grow into this maturity in god's service that's the race so salvation, it brings you back to the Dominion Covenant. It doesn't keep you out of it. It brings you back to it. You can actually run the race. You can actually live the Christian life. You can work within, within it. Which means that we, need to, we have to see our pursuit of sanctification as part of the race. It's part of what God is doing in us. It's how God restores the image of God in us. If we will not be developed into mature men and women and children, we will remain in perpetual adolescence and God will break us out of it. And I think that's why our churches are full of what we might call spiritual idiots, fools. They might know a few things, but they, they're not running the race. They have officially stepped out after the 100-meter mark, sat down, looked for the Gatorade, and, and put an umbrella up, hopefully, you know, to, to rest. They, you make a profession of faith. You don't do anything with it. They treat faith as this mere transaction instead of a grace that's given to make us obedient subduers. And this sort of infantile Christianity is why we're in the mess we're in. But we have to be of a different sort because we are sons and daughters. He won't, God will not spoil us, and He won't ignore us and let us do whatever we want, and nor will He let us get away with our stupidity and folly. He just won't. We, can't, <laughs> we will not run headlong into all this debauchery, and God the Father will just look at that and say, Ah, oh, He's having fun. Let the kid play. Nonsense. He won't do it. The Lord disciplines us, and we know that He loves us because He's doing the discipline. And so if we're going to be biblical Christians living biblical lives, then we will press the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. And if we will do this pressing of his kingdom into everything, we shouldn't be surprised if things go a little bit sideways. Oh, you're those type of people. You're those abolitionists who stand out and call the church to repentance. Oh, that's you. That oh you're those t- you believe in God's law that the magistrate should obey it oh, what a weirdo <laughs> okay humanists, give me your option like th- it's gonna go sideways now go back to chapter eleven we're coming close to the end back to chapter eleven I want to read verses thirty two on because I, I want you to I want you to feel this so I'm gonna read it with some unction all right. And what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. That was Elijah and Elisha. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced And scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. If we are going to run the race, we have to rid ourselves of sin. If we're going to rid ourselves of sin, we will also embrace our calling in the dominion covenant. And if we are going to embrace our calling in this dominion covenant, then Christianity is going to look a heck of a lot different than it does right now. Because none of this is going on, not in the West. We might actually find ourselves persecuted if we obey this. We might actually see things get shaken up a bit. This this quiet, pietistic Christianity is absolutely destroying us. And it's because we think the race is about Me and Jesus in my little quiet time. This race is not just about you. It's about Christ being honored by the civil magistrate. It's about Christ being honored and obeyed in our churches and our families. It's about you, children, following Jesus and obeying Him and doing whatever it takes to look like Jesus, to talk like Jesus, to function like Jesus. It's a race that involves the entirety of the cosmos, which is to come and worship god this this type of faith is not optional this sunday morning christian thing is not what god had in mind this race is a faith for all of life and it's a faith for all of life whose primary feature has jesus at the center of it and so what must we do we must fight against sin we must fight against bitterness contentiousness Pride and slander. Fight against putting your eyes where they shouldn't go. Fight against insecurity. Fight against addiction, gluttony, the inward, the outer things, all of it. Fight all of it. But don't give yourselves over to this navel-gazing. Give yourself to Christ, dear church. Fix your eyes on Him. The reason that we're supposed to fix our eyes on Christ is because our eyes are tempted to go elsewhere. And we may be tempted to look at other people, even good people that we trust and love. We may be tempted to look inward with this pietistic, inward, uh, morbid introspection. But we must resist all of it. We must look to Christ. So look to Him. Consider the hostility He endured. Why? So that you can make it through Monday. We are Christians, which means that we look to Christ always. We trust that our Father knows best and that any discipline or any chastisement that comes our way is for our good. Because the reality is, look back to verse 11 of chapter 12, and I'm done. Discipline is a shovel that digs into the heart, plants the seed of righteousness so that it can grow into faithfulness. That's what it does. And as God's covenant people, we can be sure that during this race, the shovel will do its work. The weeding will happen, and we need to get to the point where we love it. We don't just tolerate it. We endure it like Christ, knowing that there is infinite joy before us. And that's where all encouragement is found. Psalm 1611 says that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge from your word that you do care for us, you do love us, and you do intend on molding us into faithful subduers. You have given us the gift of faith, and that because you desire for us to make your covenant known and acknowledged among the nations. So we ask, Father, that you would be Patient with us. Mold us and make us into people who look like your son. And we don't want to look like the world, but rather we desire to look like Jesus. And it's his great name that I pray. Amen.